Hi, I'm Rod Morrie, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Welcome to episode 47 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today my guest is David Marcuselli. David Marcuselli holds a degree in agronomy and turf grass management from Penn State University. For several years, he worked as an assistant superintendent at Desert Mountain Golf Club, a six-course Jack Nicholas-designed private enclave near Scottsdale. Last fall, he joined the staff at Nicholas Design as design coordinator and currently oversees the construction of a new course in the Phoenix area. Marcuselli is not, and he would not mind me saying this, like the guests I typically have on the podcast, at least not at this stage in his career. I've always wanted to view Feed the Ball as a record of contemporary architecture, of golf courses and the stories they tell. That story of design and how we arrived at this point includes, of course, the most influential and thoughtful designers and writers in the business. It also includes, sometimes, those with new or different experiences. But the real reason I asked Marcuselli to come on was in response to a project I became aware of during an email exchange, one that he's been developing in the town he grew up in, in Connecticut. Marcuselli is having discussions with both city planners and local landholders about creating a new open public space with a range of ecologically appropriate amenities and activities, including a community golf course. The non-traditional course will have an undetermined number of holes tailored to the land with flexibility in both length and orientations, the opportunity to play different multiples of holes, low agronomic inputs, and a more weathered naturalistic appearance. While there's a real chance this concept will come to fruition, it's still speculative. So, I wondered, is it too soon to talk about it? Maybe I should wait until shovels are actually in the ground. But for all the time we spend on this podcast talking about public golf and urging the creation and reinvention of community courses, affordable golf, truly accessible golf, it would be derelict now not to be proactive and to try to lend it early support. What am I doing in golf media and with this podcast, after all, if I can't do whatever it is that I can to help along an important idea that represents everything we want to celebrate about golf built on a local scale, tailored to the unique needs and opportunities of a surrounding community? So we're going to have that discussion here as David details his ideas about the project and talks about its greater meaning for his hometown. I really hope you'll dig into this one, if for no other reason than to hear the voice of a young designer who is passionate about golf and is willing to take on the initiative to help create something positive and with a purpose. And also, no matter what happens, to continue the conversation about public golf and how it can be an asset to citizens when done smartly and creatively. So please, come along for the ride and meet David Marcuselli. State and got a degree in agronomy and turf grass management. And Penn State is regarded as one of the, the top schools for agronomy. And I know the University of Georgia is highly regarded too. Is, is Penn State and, and Georgia and what else would be considered the, the top schools for that degree? You know, there's a handful of them out there with really incredible programs. Um, I, I opted to choose Penn State, um, even living in Arizona at the time, um, you know, pursuing an out of state program. Uh, you know, education where, um, UConn, where I'm from in Connecticut, UConn has a great program. University of Arizona has a great program. Uh, University of Minnesota, uh, Michigan state, 
um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely leaving some out there. I mean, there's some A&M schools that um, ha- have incredible programs. I chose to go with a Penn State pedigree. Um, and I'll be honest, I mean, when I stepped into the program, you know, my background was, I was working in hotels, man. I mean, I was, you know, I had transitioned into golf, but I was in like clubhouse operations, um, the golf operation. Um, I was not heavily involved in the turf management programs at like at all. And I knew I wanted to get into design at some point. Um, that was kind of my inspiration to go the agronomy route, knowing that, you know, landscape architecture might not be the right way to go because new builds are slowing down. And, um, you know, the trend at the time when I pursued this program was, you know, regrassing golf courses to be more heat and drought tolerant and this sort of thing. And I wanted to have a molecular understanding of every job site I went on. I felt like that was adding more value than understanding, you know, how to calculate, you know, cuts and fills and things like that. Those are things I can learn on the fly. Um, the science was really what, what kind of pulled me in. And, um, so I chose Penn state because of the Rolodex that comes with it. I mean, it's, it's already open doors for me. Um, again, not having much of a background in that industry. I mean, they accepted me right in like, you know, like I was a, a veteran assistant superintendent looking to further my career. Um, and I wasn't at the K at the time I was an assistant general manager working with Kemper sports uh, when I enrolled in the program. I'm glad you brought that up. So you started working with Troon and you had the hospitality management, as you mentioned, then you go to, you add the uh, agronomy degree from Penn state. You were on a superintendent staff and you always had the goal of, of working toward, uh, being a golf course architect basically. So what, why I, you know, that's the hardest of all the golf professions. Golf course architect is probably the most formidable, you know, profession to crack into in and succeed what what's driven you to try to you know reach for the stars reach the 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 dimmest star in the galaxy well derek uh played rugby in college during my undergrad you know i'm a glutton for punishment (laughs) um you know i just i like waking up and getting punched around and that's that's just kind of the person i am i mean that's what drives me and um you know at this point without actually you know, being a design associate, which, uh, you know, assuming that's the next rung on the ladder. Um, I've held pretty much every job in the industry, man. I mean, I, you know, I've, 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 I've looped bags, I've scrubbed clubs, I've washed carts, I've flipped burgers, man. I mean, I was an assistant GM, I was selling private memberships. Um, you know, this was the last frontier. Um, and actually it's really funny. I was living in Colorado, uh, working in hotels full time, working in golf part time to play free golf, and uh, you know there was a there was a consultant out, you know, painting some bunker lines on one of the courses I played, and that I, it clicked. I was like, dude, like it's not like people don't just show up and mow the green at a different height. Like this was manufactured, this was built, this was put here, and it's an incredible blend of like civil engineering art science and it's it's really a a combination of all the things that kind of fascinate me um i kind of burnt myself out of the hospitality industry um i really enjoyed it but i you know i struggled to be genuine uh basically at the end of it and i was an aspen man i mean this is the elite of the elite you know traveling for the holidays or whatever it might be um and they're coming to me with genuine concerns you know the issues that are bothering them i mean they paid top dollar to be there and i mean i'm 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 faking answers and you know trying to 
get their problem solved. And that's when I realized it was a problem. And, um, I was kind of already had my foot in the door in golf, um, and realized that's where I wanted to be. You reached out and asked me a question a couple weeks ago, and it had to do with the, this idea of why are there certain architectural firms and architects that tend to get the best sites over and over again, the best jobs, have the best clients, and get the most media coverage? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing that question. That's not exactly what we were talking about. But what, what does that feel like as somebody who's getting into the business and you're looking up and there's, you know, the, there's the top rung of architecture and, and the top designs that are being produced and the top sites that are being transformed. What does the field look to you like right now, especially now? And now you're with Nicholas Design, who, you know, they have a long historic worldwide enterprise. And, and yet you're, you're getting started with them. And yet you still have this kind of pers- perspective of looking up at these this other place, uh, th- th- these other people who are at the top of the design game. What does that feel like for you? And where, where were you feeling when, when we had that discussion? Cause you're not the only one who has this question or, or, or feels this way. Right. Okay. So, you know, um, the people in the industry that are getting these premier sites, I mean, they've earned it, man. You know, um, I, I said this to you the other day, like I'm nobody, you know, and I have no business stepping foot on, on those sites. Um, Nicholas gave me an incredible opportunity to try and prove myself. Um, and you know, I'm taking that day by day and I, and I'm going through the process of, of doing that, you know, every chance I get that being said, you know, do I want to have an opportunity to work on these sites? I mean, you know, you look at some of the longtime veterans of the industry, um, you know, a lot of the guys on you have on your podcast, um, that, are, are well-known, you know, worldwide, um, you know, they haven't had a chance to step on some of these premier sites and, and they've been able to produce incredible golf and, um, make a name for themselves and provide a sustainable business model for themselves. And, um, where I kind of see myself fitting into that, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm not an incredible dozer operator, right? I can go forward, reverse, I can drop the blade, I can lift the blade, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, 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 I can run equipment. Um, I could be self-sustainable should the opportunity present itself. Um, no issues, but right now, I mean, there's better people, uh, available and around to leave a lasting impression on the surface. And so, you know, I'm going to let them do that, do their thing. And, uh, let them have their chance and, and, and leave their imprint. Um, you know, that being said, I'd love an opportunity, um, to just kind of find my way in. And it's going to be, you know, like how you've been talking with Matt Dusenberry. uh, you know, there's these kind of hybrid firms, um, right now, you know, there's a lot of clubs that made it through the 2008, um, market collapse, um, that they're, they're prime for renovation, you know, and, uh, the phones are ringing for a lot of these companies out there and they're filling the cups with T's renovations, bunkers, renovations, greens, renovations, landing area, grading, um, you know, things like this, and they need consulting architects, you know, and, uh, I'd love an opportunity to just try and find a way and get my foot in the door with these guys. And, um, you know, right now that, that opportunity is with Nicholas. So I don't know that I, fully circled to your question there. Um, but you know, basically at the end of the day, like I'm just trying to make the best of any, any opportunity available to me. 
obviously we'd love to get one of these premier sites and build a destination golf course or whatever it might be. Um, you know, just got to be patient, man. That time yeah, will just, come. That's where the architectural industry is right now, right now. And you're not the only one. You pointed it out that so many of the guests that I've talked to and so many of the other architects in the field are kind of wondering the same question. Like, will that day ever come when I get that, you know, life-changing, career-changing uh, Pacific Dunes type site? And, you know, that's just the phase that we're in right now. Whether or not that happens, we just have they they have to wait and see. You know, it, it could come. The only way you can you know assure your chances are increasing is to continue to do good work and have different type of opportunities and make the most of them. Like like you are right now. The other way to do it would be to create your own opportunity. Now, I spend a lot of time on the podcast and have a lot of conversations about this concept of community golf, neighborhood golf, urban golf, however you want to define it. And it's right now, it's mostly hypothetical because with the way we talk about it, it is a little bit um, sort of imaginary, Pollyanna-ish, Pollyanna-ish, like, oh, if we could just you know install these golf courses into these city centers and the whole community will come and play and they'll all kick the ball around at the same time and it'll be affordable and everybody will walk. You know, that's that's a very, uh, like, Brigadoon concept. But it's not unrealistic either. You're doing something in your hometown in Connecticut. You've, you've taken this idea beyond the conception stage. You're actually having a dialogue with the people in town about building a community recreational center that includes golf. Explain what your idea is, uh, and we'll dig more into the actual concept of it, and, and and what what the discussions have been like once you approached the city about this. Sure. So, um, you know, it, it is still, I mean, it's still very much conceptual. Um, you know, we are having conversations with, um, you know, a handful of different areas, a handful of different landowners, uh, trying to be creative and, and, and find a way to, to get this done. Um, the overall vision, right, is to offer my community, my hometown, um, Newtown, Connecticut, and offer them basically a community amenity, a community asset um, that provides value uh, to the residents of town um, beyond just the game of golf you know, when the sun goes down, right. What does the course provide? I, you know, my, my concept, my vision is that when the tea sheet's not full, you know, this, this community amenity is still serving a purpose. Um, and that's an area, you know, a community gathering place to, you know, in my eyes play golf. Right. But that's not the sales pitch. It, you know, the idea here is to have a concert pavilion with Friday night concert series, community gardens, shared gardens with farmers markets, uh, multi-purpose trail networks, you know, maybe disc golf course through the trail networks. Um, it's a year round, you know, amenity in my, in my eyes, right? Obviously spring, summer, fall, um, our high season, but, um, we'd love to have winter snow events, uh, cross-country skiing, sledding, tubing events, you know, hot cocoa station, waffle barn kind of deal when, you know, the big nor'easters coming through town, you know, and primarily, um, it, it's, it's green space preservation, right? It's, it's, it's an eco park. Um, it is a pollinator habitat. It is, uh, replenishing groundwater um you know it, it provides a number of these services um that essentially are intangible right and if the only people using this amenity are our golfers uh you know we've kind of lost our way 
so th- this is a, a great kind of holistic concept for the community it has multiple uses. It, it, it gives back to the community, gives back to nature the way it's outlined. Did you approach your town, ta- the town, the city council with this idea? Was this your idea that you brought to them? Um, essentially, yes. And, uh, you know, r- right now, um, Derek, you know, I'm, I'm basically working with, uh, private landowner um to to try and get this done and you said it's a um, land trust you know that owns a lot of land around the city yeah exactly yep that's that's exactly right um you know there are parcels of land that are city or you know city owned state owned um you know shared plots that i certainly have my eyes on but um for the time being you know right now if we can do this with a, a private land trust, private land entity, um, you know, that's, that's goal number one, uh, right now. And that is the direction that, that I am heading. Um, and I have a colleague, um, uh, basically a, a guy I grew up with, uh, his name's Mike Hennessy. He lives in North Carolina now, but you know, we grew up together in town and, um, he's, you know, he's, really in touch with, with these guys. And he's kind of handling a lot of the politics and that sort of thing. And, and I, you know, I explain the vision and I explain the, the science behind it and, and, and that sort of thing. And I'll kind of go through the master plan process while he'll help me jump, um, hurdles with the town. So the biggest obstacle that I always see, I have this, this place in, in my town where that I would love to see something like this done to you as well. The, the biggest obstacle I see is, number one, working with any kind of government agency is going to be difficult. You know, the smaller the town, I think that probably the easier and more receptive they may be. But then that opens the door to financing. Is there financing and, and is it in the budget? And, you know, most city governments aren't necessarily flush with extra <laughs> resources. So what, what's the conversation exactly. been like from, from the city's perspective on how, how receptive that they've been? Well, um, you know, the, the idea we have is, you know, it's a home run, man. Um, and basically, you know, the, the hurdle that I'm trying to, um, step over right now is steering the conversation away from building a golf course, you know, for this to be successful, the golf course has to open first. Um, and that has to be a source of revenue along the way, at least a source of interest in my eyes. Um, so people are afraid to build golf, man. I mean, yes. you know, it's, <laughs> well, it's justifiably. Not, you know, so that's, that's why that's, we we're in this position we're in. I mean, we over, we yeah, built too exactly. much and it was too expensive. Exactly. So you know, the conversation is: Look, do we have golf? Yes, but that's not the service that that we're offering. Um, that's not the, that's not necessarily the value here. Um, in my eyes, I mean that, you know, the golf course is going to be sick, man. Right. And we can dive into that in a little bit, but, um, you know, the, the conversation is let's, let's get the, let's get the topic of community enrichment, um, and community togetherness, um, at the forefront, as well as overall inclusivity, um, of the amenity. Right. So, you know, golf will have an associated greens fee, um, the greens fee will reflect the cost of maintenance and the cost of construction, which we can jump into, uh, down the road here, but, you know, to utilize the sledding Hills, to utilize the nature trails, um, you know, this is a community amenity, right? Those, those, those are free things. Those come with your town, uh, parks and rec pass. 
Um, so, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to steer the, the fear of building a golf course, um, out of the conversation. Right. And raising funds, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily want to dive into, um, the history of my town or the politics involved in my town, um, here on the podcast. Um, I, you know, if it's, an, if it, if it's integral to us being successful, we can have that conversation. But, um, you know, the town, the town is looking for ways to, you know, bring the community back together. Um, and, and, you know, reestablish the, the, the culture, reestablish the environment, um, that, that my hometown of Newtown, Connecticut, you know, had, had years ago. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what we're working on, and that's the biggest hurdle I'm 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 jumping over well, right now. L- let's talk about that, David. Yeah, now, yep. you're, the city yep. that you grew up in is is Newtown. We're yep. six a little over six years past the Sandy Hook shootings, and I think that's a huge huge yes. part of this conversation and why this is Im- important to talk about. And and your endeavor is important, and it's not you know th- this is a great idea, and it's applicable to hopefully every city across the country. You know, to bring golf to the community and and have it you know accessible and looked at in a different way than it historically has been. But you're in a very unique, a unique situation. Um, I'll let you say it. If, I mean, if you could, I don't know if this is fair to you, but, but t- tell us about what's, ha- what's happened in, what's happened in Newtown over the last, you know, six years, what the state of mind is there and your connection to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if anyone listening was alive in December, 2012, I mean, you know, all you had to do was turn on the TV. Right. So, you know, our community, you know, the sense of community was, was shaken. Um, you know, we grew up in a great rural town. It was a great place to grow up, you know, um, great friends, lifelong friends established there. And, you know, my folks are still in town. And like, when I say I'm going to see my family, like, you know, I'm coming home to Newtown and, and I love that. Um, being away when, when that happened, I was living in Colorado at the time, you know, coming home, um, it's different, you know, and, um, it feels different and, um, just, you know, just the vibe. I mean, you know, the, the town is doing everything they can to, you know, put that in the rear view and, and, and move forward. And, um, there's a slew of community organizations and, and, and charities and, uh, memorials and, and all these great, all these great things, right. And all these great, you know, thinkers in town, um, are, are doing their best to reestablish, uh, you know, what we had, you know, six, six years ago. Um, I will say, you know, on the surface, knowing, knowing town as well as I do being, you know, a resident, a former resident anyway, um, it's still very apparent, right? Like when I pull in, if I were to pull into town today, like it just feels different, man. And, uh, I'm not alone in saying that or thinking that or feeling that it's going to take monumental leaps and bounds to basically overcome what happened. And I don't know that you ever do. And I don't know that you even try. Um, but you know, the concept that I'm trying to bring to the table here is, um, a, a place for uh, the youth of town, a place for the families of town um, to gather and spend an afternoon and, 
you know, I know, I know for myself, um, going out and walking a few holes, I, that's therapeutic for me, man. That's, you know, that's, that's where I do my best thinking. That's where I blow my, you know, I blow steam off or whatever, whatever it might be, you know, no scorecard in hand, just out for a walk, you know, chasing a ball, um, or walking on a nature trail with your dog or, uh, whatever it is that, that you want to do outside, um, you know, outdoor recreation is therapeutic, however you consume it. And that is, you know, that's a community togetherness that we're trying to pitch here with, uh, with our community amenity. I don't think any, any of us could even imagine the sense of loss that Newtown has suffered and experienced. And yeah, I mean, the way you just said it, like that, you know, the, 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 the town is, I mean, it seems like people like you who are connected to town and people in town are obviously still dealing with this. There was another tragedy in town earlier this week and there's, there's no answer, you know, there's no, there's no way to fill that hole, but you can try, right. You know, and you, you mentioned other people in town and there are, there are other things that, and people are being, being proactive and trying to regain this sense of community. And this will be a very interesting concept and idea to watch, to see if, if golf, can can fill that role in some way if you can get this built this community center built and you know you mentioned to me earlier that one of the obstacles is that right now there are there are very few if any models out there that are similar to this that have been successful or that you can point the people in Newtown the land trust to you know to, to get people to buy into this fully and, and make you know get to a point of groundbreaking it's almost a leap of faith because they're just aren't, this hasn't really been done successfully or on a public a publicity, you know, or in a situation where it's gained publicity anywhere else in the country. It's, it's a major factor, Derek. I mean, you know, there are, there are similar concepts, um, you know, and my, my idea for the golf course is, uh, you know, non-traditional, right. And, and like you said, well, you know, we'll, we'll cover that in a second, but, um, you know, I'd say what, what, what the, uh, boys did down at, at winter park, um, is potentially the closest, uh, you know, representation of, of the idea that I'm trying to promote here. Um, but it's still, you know, there's really not an apples to apples, um, comparison out there. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, the word I used with you, the phrase I used with you was, you know, you can lead a horse to water, right? So all, all I can do is explain my, you know, our vision, um, here with what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and you know, there's, there's just really no real life situation for me to say, look at, you know, look at Williamstown, you know, so-and-so over here and what they've done, um, and how it's benefiting their community and, and residents. Um, it, it's just not really out right. there. So yeah, that's, that's a major hurdle. So getting back into the project again, and I, I know you don't want to belabor, you know, the logistics of it too much right now because it's still, you know, in an early phase, but is, is this a situation where for, obviously you have to get the land trust or somebody to, to donate the land. It's, it does, it's not going to be a purchase. So that's, that's one hurdle. And that's one it's, it is a nice situation to be in that, that there are, that there is a trust or, or entity around you that is maybe potentially willing, who has the land and is willing to maybe donate it if they can be convinced. Um, 
to fund the construction of the course, how is that going to be through private donations? Do you envision, or some kind of bond issue, or does the, is the city contributing in some method? Um, fu- funds will be raised um, privately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I'd like to. As as I sit here right now, I'm trying to avoid uh, city, you know, as much city involvement as possible, just because it it can be challenging. Um, but you know, the the club, um, you know, I want us to operate as a 501c7, which is a social club. Okay, it's a nonprofit social club. When I, with my time with Kemper Sports, I, you know, I was an assistant GM of a similar club, so I understand that you know how you, sometimes you have to be creative with, with ways that you raise funds and, and, and these sort of things. So basically the requirements of that are you're required to have like a dues paying membership. Okay. Um, and that might be in the form of annual pass holders. Okay. Whether they buy, um, a summer pass or, or whatever it might be, or a founding membership, um, type deal. Right. But the, the line in the 501 C seven rule book that is look overlooked by every public or every private golf club out there. This is overlooked by them or, you know, just, they just turn a blind eye to it. You know, the quote is the social club may not hold itself out from providing goods and services to the general public. Okay. And that is, that is in the handbook and that is the overall goal here. Um, so by no means is this a private club, right? But Um, you know, the concept behind the 501 C seven is that we're able to, um, raise money to, you know, cover our expenses, um, through the form of annual passes and, and public greens fees. Um, we're also holding charitable events, um, you know, in the name of some of the charities in town or, um, you know, basically whoever, whoever's interested in, in, in hosting some sort of, um, charitable event or community event, um, you know, it'll, it'll all kind of go into the, uh, operating costs and, you know, anything left over gets, gets donated back to the community, you know, raising funds for construction. Um, you know, that'll be, that'll be done in the form of founding membership, um, you know, private, privately raised funds. And, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I'm not really concerned with, with raising the money. Um, my focus right now is, is, is finding the land. Um, we have money, you know, the town, the town will piggyback this and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get it done. We're just trying to, we're just trying to get the land acquired. Right. So when we're considering projects like this or potential projects, you know, community-based golf, it's, it's great to kind of think about the, what you'd want to design in this, this perfect vision of it. But it really is dependent on the actual location and the locale. I mean, it has to be an organic product of the community that it's set in. That's going to look different in different parts of the country. And every city is going to have a unique set of dynamics. And one of the one of the things that attracts it about me is it can be, if you go into it with that mindset, that we're, the golf, and obviously the rest of it too, but the golf is going to be adapted to that particular town, that particular piece of land that you have. And you, that's your only goal is you're going to make it perfect for that. You can throw away all the other preconceived notions and just build the golf course that's correct for that location. So obviously, when you, whenever you get your piece of land, you're going to tailor the golf course to that. And and that doesn't have to be a nine-hole course or an 18-hole course, does it? That, that's exactly correct, Eric. I mean, I, honestly, um, 
<laughs> the last thing I want to do is restrict residents, anyone who wants to come out uh, to play the golf course, to two sales categories, nine or eighteen holes. Um, that is not that is not the goal here. Um, I, I, you know, the, the model that I see, um, is offering various, you know, three, four hole loops on the golf course. And I, I mean, I'd love to say, you know, you put a dollar price per hole and say, Hey, I feel like playing seven holes today. Okay, great. That's nine bucks or what, you know, whatever it might be dollar 50, a hole kind of, kind of deal. Um, I, I don't know where we're at. I mean, you know, that'll take some number crunching and some kind of market research to see what kind of rounds we're going to produce. Um, but you know, I, I have, I have no preconceived notion of establishing a nine or 18 hole golf course. Um, the sites available, um, you know, that I'm kind of hawking a little bit, uh, dude, they're way cool. So, you know, our town is, is super historic. I mean, you drive into town, it says like, welcome to Newtown, Connecticut established 1705. Nice. Okay. So yeah. Right. So like, I mean, we weren't even a nation, right. For, for by, another by real years. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, you know, that being said, you know, you go through some of the green space in town and there are like way cool stone walls erected from revolutionary war camps and, you know, there's a, a park in town that, you know, is rumored to be like George Washington's camp and came through town X amount of times or, or whatever. Um, so there's really cool stories out there. And um, I look forward to doing some of the archaeology and, and figuring out what story we're going to be able to tell. I mean, you know, one of the sites that I have my eyes on was owned. It's the highest point in town. Um, and it was owned by the guy that created the game Scrabble, right? right Scrabble. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so I have like, I have this vision, <laughs> you know, shirts, hats, logos, stickers, whatever, with like missing Scrabble pieces. And, um, you know, so, I, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how we can really tailor, um, our product to tell the story of the site, uh, that, that we're looking at. Uh, but also tailor the uh, the golf itself to be, you know, to promote basically ease of construction, ease of maintenance, uh, which will be reflected in 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 the greens fees. And so, you know, the long and short of it is, though, just depending on the acreage that you have and the the way the the, the park develops, this could be a six hole course. It could be a eleven hole course. It could be configured in different loops, so you could play different combinations. I mean, you're, it's really whatever whatever you can fit in there, whatever this makes the most sense. One hundred percent, man. I mean, you know, that's that's completely it. So, you know, in 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 my eyes, right uh, when I lay in bed at night, unable to sleep because I'm thinking about this you know, I, I'm, I'd love to be able to offer the high school team a traditional nine hole course within our golf course. So they can, you know, so they can have their tournaments and that sort of thing. So, you know, I'd love to have 10, 11, 12, 13 holes of golf. So we can do that, but I also want to be able to create variety. Um, and like I said earlier, not restrict people to nine or 18 holes. So, Um, you know, that being said, we, you know, we, we want to establish triangular loops or, or, you know, kind of quadrants of golf that all make their way back to the starting point, 
you know, after so many holes so we can keep people going. And, you know, my main, you know, I, I mentioned to you through an email, you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to feel restricted, you know, by booking tea times. Um, I want people to be able to show up and drop a ball in the rack and, you know, be ready to go. If I can only play for an hour at two o'clock, like, dude, show up. You don't have to look at teeoff.com or whatever it is and say, oh man, there's not a tea time available till 248 or 312. So I can't play today. Like show up, you know, we're going to find a way to get you out. It's going to take a creative starter or, you know, whatever staff kind member of we have yeah. coordinating that. Yeah. So, um, he, you know, the starter has an idea of who went off loop A or who went off loop B um, and and where our next window is going to be and how we can best that's get such you a, out That's there. an amazing I, idea. I want that to be an inclusive. Yeah. I don't know that I'd heard about it before until you just mentioned it, but the concept of paying like per hole. And I, I wonder if there's a way that you could – you know, put your ball on the rack. I love that idea. No tea times. Just show up and, and we'll get you off. I mean, that's so that's so organic. And then you you play and then it's like you only have time for seven holes. And then you then you pay whatever that rate is. You pay when you leave. I wonder if there's some way to do that. Yeah. Like to implement um you know, nowadays everybody has a smartphone. If you if you just scan your phone like on every tee, you know, or when you walk off the last green, you know, you just quick scan your phone somewhere. But some concept where it's like a it's like the grocery store, you know, you don't, you don't pay before you go in and say, this is what I'm going to buy. You pay at checkout. And then, you know, as you're walking so, off the so golf right. course, you know, you, or maybe that's when you scan something and, you know, you don't even have to go inside. You just get in your car and drive away or walk home. And I'm, I'm actually, I mean, what a segue you just made, um, because <laughs> this is, this is a really cool idea. So, you know, we, we talk about paying per hole, like, you know, maybe we do it that way, or maybe it's a check in, check out, pay for your time. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you exceed, you know, four hours on site, you know, you don't pay, like it's, it's an all day pass, right? Like you're, you can hang out the rest of the day. Like we, you know, we don't care. You've been here long enough. You paid your dues. Um, but the, the, the next, you know, the next topic, and I, I'm trying to wrap my head around some creative ideas, right. But for tournaments and that sort of thing, I want to, I want to score cards you know, people, you need a scorecard so people can keep score and you know, it's a tournament. So there's gotta be a winner, what, what have you. But what I really want to have here is like an electronic scorecard on your phone, um, that, you know, maybe it, it, there's some kind of algorithm here. I haven't done all the research. This is totally a half-baked idea, but I've been thinking about it for a while. You know, you, you take your phone, you enter what loop you're going off, you know, and it asks you a series of questions like how far do you hit your driver? How far do you hit your seven iron? How far do you hit your nine iron? And it'll basically give you a location of where you should play each hole, how you should kind of play each hole, um, and, and create a series of golf games, um, through your phone, right? Like it'll tailor your ability, um, and tell you how to make your way around the golf course, you know, in the best way possible. And I, like I said, a totally half-baked idea. Don't even know, you know, how to get that done. <laughs> I'm sure there are ways there and there are people out there way smarter than me that I can help, you know, that I can reach out to, to try and figure this out. Um, but you know, I, I want I want there to be like the focus is fun, right? The focus I don't want the focus to be score. Like I don't want someone to say I shot forty two and you know pars thirty four 
out here in Newtown or whatever it might be. Like, I, you know, I don't want those conversations to have even happen. Um, unless it's a tournament day, I want someone to say like, Oh, did you play hole two on loop B today from like, where did you right. play from? Because, you know, I, you know, we, we teed it up here. Um, and you know, I beat Tom, uh, you know, I made birdie and he made par and, and, you know, and those are the conversations that, that I, I want to hear around the putting green or whatever. It yeah. Might be. So when you talked earlier about, you know, approaching uh, uh, the city and other entities about getting them on board with this idea, you know, you said you wanted to de-emphasize the golf aspect of it a little bit because people are, you know, for good reason, they're gun shy about golf and, you know, they, they have uh, they have an aversion to that right now. And I, I kind of struggle with that idea because, on one hand, I don't want to change golf into something that it's not. I want to preserve the. I, I want the game to be preserved. I want it to be presented in some fashion, like it always has. But to me, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be nine or eighteen holes. It, it means you have to. I shouldn't say have to. It means that you want to embrace the walking aspect of it. You want it to be affordable. You want it to be approachable. You want it to be about striking a ball with the club and trying to get it in a hole and figuring out the best way to do that. So it doesn't mean foot golf and it doesn't mean top golf and it doesn't mean other things that some of the industry leaders, so-called leaders, have you know brought up as remedies for whatever they think ails golf right now. So I want to hold on to that, but I do understand the importance of trying to change the public's perception of golf, not to change golf, but to change the perception. And this idea of, of having these, I mean, what you're proposing is golf, but it's not golf. Just the, the idea that you can play multiple tees and, and, and suit it to your game and pay, play and pay for a certain number of holes and, and have a non-traditional golf course that helps change the perception of, of golf and that I think to me is so important to opening this door is to get not golfers understand you and I understand people who play golf understand they would embrace that it's all the people that you need to get on board who aren't into golf the way we are you need to start to move their understanding of what golf is and an idea like this begins to do that now there's also the other side of it and I keep coming back to the economics of it because that fundamentally is what's going to make or break any project like this in any other locality. What are some, you have some other ideas about how you can keep costs down that I think are really smart that kind of blend into this whole idea of this site, this whole project being community oriented. What are some of the other things, especially based on your agronomic background that, that can be adopted on your course and elsewhere? Sure. Um, I'm, and I'm glad you asked. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't see, I don't see lush green grass, right. When I, when I envision this, uh, this project, um, good. I see maybe scruffy, I see maybe scruffy edges. Um, I see, you know, I'd like to have single row irrigation through the fairways, but with the climate there, you know, I mean, if I just drove a water truck down the fairway in the morning to just give it a drink, uh, in the summer, like, you know, we can get away with that. You know, greens will need, greens will need a loop, um, for sure. Greens will need an irrigation loop. So, you know, I'll cross, you know, we'll figure that out. But for the rest of the golf course, like I'm thinking, you know, heat, heat drought tolerant, uh, cool season grasses, like a tall fescue that has a deep root system and aggressive tillers and, and, and rhizomes to, you know, not get too nerdy, but basically, you know, that'll promote quick recovery. Like, you know, they'll use all their energy, um, to just kind of stay alive, you know, at least under the surface. So when, 
the environmental conditions come back and they're sustainable, um, you haven't lost your turf. I mean, it, you know, it, you might have some some challenging spots out there, but um, you know, basically, it comes down to scientific application of of you know your environment your environmental conditions and um utilizing the best available uh turf species out there to to do the most with the least um beyond that you know i i'd love to see few or no hazards on the golf course maybe besides an irrigation reservoir um the course i play at here in arizona is called tatum ranch um I mean, we've got six bunkerless holes out here on the golf course and they are the best <laughs> holes right. on the golf course. Yeah. And they offer the most strategy. They're the most thought provoking. The green surrounds are the most complex. Um, I mean, they're the best holes on the golf course. And those are the holes that everyone pops on, you know, when, when you're playing a match and, you know, I don't know what that's a testament to. Um, I haven't quite, you know, figured it all out because I'm still in the process of studying those holes. Um, but there's something to that. And, and not only that, you don't need to send a bunker crew out to those holes, right? So you're saving man hours by creating strategy around the golf course without having postcard bunkers, you know, s staring at you in the face off the tee. And, you know, between the golf course corridors, um, I want native to go native, right? I want to establish an Eastern pollinator mix, um, you know, maybe that bloom at different times of the year. So, um, you know, all we're doing is pulling noxious weeds out of there, what have you. And, um, you know, that's a cool story to tell you established a butterfly habitat or a honeybee habitat or hummingbird habitat or, you know, whatever it might be, um, and not have to worry about, out of play areas and just kind of, just kind of let it be, um, you know, and to help offset the labor, um, and you know, the labor's the labor's not something I've, you know, we've fully worked out yet. Um, in, in my head and in some preliminary talks, it's, uh, you know, it's a sector of parks, uh, town parks crew, um, you know, maybe a couple guys. I, I mean, I see, you know, I'd like to see greens triplexed every morning because I like a, a true roll on my ball. So, um, like that sounds great, but I mean, tees and fairways, I mean, that that's all one uniform height of cut all the way throughout one machine all the way around the golf course. Um, and you really only have to mow that, you know, twice a week is, is, <laughs> I mean, that's, that might be overdoing it, you know, but I'd like to see it twice a week because, I have my own standards, but it's not necessary by any means. Um, and then I see like a, a youth work program, um, you know, coming through town, whether it's uh, Boy Scout clubs doing community service hours or kids that are looking to get free rounds of golf. Um, you know, I'm not talking about them riding mowers, but I'm talking about you know, edging irrigation heads or blowing leaves in the fall or, uh, pulling noxious weeds or, you know, cleaning up the perimeter areas. So, um, the core labor force, um, can, can focus on turf areas, can focus on, you know, our product and not have to spend afternoons, you know, walking through the weeds. So, um, you know, those are just some of the ideas that, that I have to kind of help, um, at least offset, 
some operational costs, you know, and so many of these courses have lost their way and, you know, they need to charge 120, 130, 140 bucks, um, to bear, to not even break even because, you know, the uh, golfer's expectations are so far fetched on the conditioning and, um, you got lavish flower beds that need full-time staff members, you know, behind a tea box and like, you know, this, this is not that, this is not that kind of place. I mean, this is, you know, as rustic, uh, as, as you can imagine for new England, um, that's what I want this to be, you know, and, and our green fleas will be reflected in that. Yeah. The, the kids maintenance program reminds me a little bit about what Matt Dusenberry was talking about in Hartford, where they were taking, um, people who, were kind of being reintroduced back into society, whether they were in jail or, but just, you know, helping their recovery process using that labor on the golf course. Now it's not professional labor, but it's, it's effective labor because it's, it's not going to cost you a lot. I like that idea that, and the, the notion of having all these native areas that can be, uh, you know, still be environmental areas, whether they're bringing back, as you said, you know, butterflies or, or bee habitats. Those are the kind of things yeah, and, and all, the, and uh, in addition to all the like the low inputs that you're talking about, and and how to maintain the golf course on on a very natural level, th- those are all the kind of things that again can help bring people who have this one perception of golf as being this like expensive, lush, chemical laden environment. Uh, they can bring them on board by introducing these concepts they probably never considered before in relation to a golf course. Yeah, so, you know, what I'm trying to preach. Uh, Derek through all of this and I I don't want to sound like I'm beating a dead horse here but you know a a golf course that only serves a purpose to golfers has lost its way and you know that's not a one-size-fits-all statement Um, I'm thinking I'm thinking modern times right like um, you know, wing foot is wing foot and they don't, they don't need to provide a, a native habitat to butterflies or bees or bring in troubled youth or, or local youth, uh, organizations to help offset their maintenance costs. And they, you know, they don't, they just don't need to do that. Um, that's not up to them, but, uh, for someone that is trying to, you know, basically break down, kick, kick down doors and, and, and get a, community amenity project done um i mean in my eyes this is this is the way that we do that you know this is the way that we break down those barriers um and it's by being more than golf and that's such a good point golf only works when it has a purpose and it works in as you said like in the in the case of old clubs and many clubs a few clubs now but they they did serve a purpose it was for golfing members you know they were the uh, aristocratic people who wanted a leisure activity and it served a purpose for them it was there was a, a need and it fulfilled the need and what happened was you know for the, for 50 years we you know the golf industry was building golf courses that didn't serve a a real purpose the purpose was not golf it was away from golf it was to make money or it was to um, you know, sell real estate. This is a purpose-driven golf course, especially in Newtown, Connecticut, right now, in a place that that needs to continue to heal. It needs a way for people to find commonality again and something to unite them and, and to bring them joy and comfort and unity. This has a purpose. It, this can be the example, you know, that that other towns eventually can look to. You know. I- I want this to be a model that other towns can do this. And I don't want this to be I, like, 
the narrative here is not about Sandy Hook. The narrative is not about, you know, what happened six years ago. I mean, you know, the narrative is, look, man, um, we've got a pretty cool idea here. And this is how we get it done. And this is how it's self-sustainable. Um, there is no public access golf option or outdoor recreation option for that matter um, in town. And I know this because my buddies and I grew up here and we spent every afternoon like driving around in a car, hanging out in someone's basement, you know, <laughs> up to no good. So like, you know, this, like if we had this, you know, um, how many days would we have spent out there? I mean, like every single day, you know, and like, this is a, this is a town that just needs to add a community amenity to be whole, you know? And, it, and, and, and that's, that's the narrative. And there are so many other suburban or rural towns that could, could follow this model. I mean, I, I love like, okay. I love like Tom Bendelow's story, right? Like hired by New York city park district, uh, to bring golf to the public at, at a, easy to maintain, affordable to maintain and affordable to play price. That is not championship golf. Right. But that's the New York city parks district. And that is in, you know, the largest city, um, in the country. Um, and, and there's a built in audience, right? So, you know, that's a little bit of a different story while I'm trying to play modern day Tom Bendelow. Um, but we have to make it match our surroundings and that's in a town of 30,000 people um, that, you know, that is nearby. I mean, we're 70 miles or so from Manhattan and, um, you know, this is Connecticut. There's a bunch of people there, but I want this to, I want this to, you know, be for our community, you know, and, and it's about matching that and trying to figure out a way to promote that. And to swing the pendulum, far away from this and 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 we'll continue to talk about this and 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 you and i will continue to talk about it and 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 monitor this but for now to swing the pendulum all the way across the country to where you are in arizona right now but also to tie it back into turf grasses and your expertise there and some of the you know you mentioned some of the uh, your grassing ideas uh for this course by the way you you named this this project's community project uh Pudatuck Meadows. It, what does that mean? What is that? Where does that name come from? Is that yeah, a local? Yeah. Well, um, that's that's yeah, exactly. So that name, um, it's not permanent. Um, that's so I could put something on paper and put it in people's face. Um, you know, through through town runs runs the Pudatuck River, um, and you know, there's streets named Pudatuck Road and. Um, it, it's a com- it's just a common name throughout town. It's an homage to, uh, the earliest settlers of Newtown that were the Pudatuck Native Americans, um, who, you know, they have a, a, a smaller existence today. Um, but you know, without them places like, you, you know, Newtown wouldn't exist. So, um, it's, it's, it's just an homage to, to the town's early, early history, Um, and depending on how we actually green light this project, uh, we will likely have to pay homage to someone else, another entity or whatever it might be. Um, it's not a permanent name, although a 
pretty cool name and a fantastic yeah. logo. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, I like it. It's a, it is a good name. Memorable. It's catchy. That's half the branding opportunity there. So yeah. you're in Arizona right now, and you've worked the last few years at Desert Mountain. Uh, Nicholas com- Nicholas built uh, six courses uh, there, and you were initially on the the grounds crew staff, the superintendent staff, and then you became affiliated with the Nicholas company when they came and did a renovation on the renegade course, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, and, and you you're doing some really interesting things there with the turf grassing, uh, which maybe are counterintuitive to the desert setting. Uh, tell us, tell us what you're most excited about with the, the grassing concept and some of the other ideas at renegade, which has always been a very kind of unique golf course with their, their double green system, uh, you know, kind of for the high handicap and low handicap player can play the same hole to different, pin locations so you know back in 1987 i mean renegade was like you said a bold design um you know possibly possibly way ahead of its time um and the nicholas design team basically created a golf course an 18 hole golf course that plays you know 36 ways um one to a more forward more accessible pin location um and one to a more difficult uh generally smaller more heavily contoured uh pin areas uh white flag being forward or you know more accessible gold flag being the more challenging um the the incredibly brilliant people at desert mountain and at Nicholas, um, conducted incredible research and, and decided that desert mountain itself, although in the Sonoran desert of North Scottsdale basically lives in its own microclimate that does not necessarily require a Bermuda grass, uh, seedbed basically a bermuda grass you know stand um it can survive year round on on cool season grasses um which is incredible to think about because you know you think about the desert and you turn on the weather channel in the summer and you see well it's going to be 120 in arizona today well you know that's at phoenix sky harbor airport you know that might be in downtown phoenix and desert mountain um is I, I don't have the numbers, but is more than a thousand feet higher, you know, than Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport is in, in, in ground elevation. So um it's really not the heat uh that is the major concern with the transition into cool season grasses uh with the new renegade project. Um this winter has been incredibly cold and incredibly wet. And about a month ago while renegades growing in it's a brand new stand of cool season turf uh they got like six to eight inches of snow all over the golf course it was incredible i mean there are people that have lived here their whole lives that it was a once in a lifetime experience for them to see that and now the team remains a once in a lifetime experience (laughs) hope it's it's, not harming exactly (laughs) well i'm you know i woke up going all the Canadians that come down here for the winter are going like, you know, wh- why did we, why aren't we in Florida right now? Um, <laughs> they get so, hurricanes over there. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, that was bizarre. And now, you know, now the team now, you know, Mike, uh, Mike Gracie, who's a superintendent at Renegade, um, who I worked under when I was there, um, you know, now he's the leading cool season turf grass growing expert 
you know, in, in the desert because he's gone through insane environmental conditions while they're reestablishing or not even they're just establishing a, a, a new stand of cool season turf throughout the entire golf course. Now, the agronomic implications that this has um, in our area, um, you know, are massive, at least, at least a desert mountain. And keep in mind, you got six golf courses there. So, you know, Renegade is the lowest in elevation of the six. It's, it's, it's on the main thoroughfare, um, through town and the other courses incrementally, you know, get higher up the mountain as you go. I'm not saying that courses in downtown Phoenix should do this because they they won't make it. Um, they're not, you know, they're not in in well, a microclimate. What are the what are the benefits of gro- of growing cool season grasses at an elevation outside of yep. Phoenix and Scottsdale? Scottsdale. Yeah, yeah. So you know, this completely eliminates um, the need for overseed. Okay, so every you know every fall, uh, every course around here. Um, closes their doors and goes through the overseed process and grows a new stand of, you know, perennial rye or poet trivialis, you know, whatever they want to grow locally, um, you know, to, to basically sheet over the dormant Bermuda grass. So people are playing a green golf course, um, through that process, um, you know, you got to close your doors for three weeks. You got to run a million gallons of water a day. You got to, increase an already high fertility program, you know, to start and, and, and push and push growth. And on the contrast, you know, when spring comes around, um, and now soils heating up, temperatures are heating up, you know, sun exposures longer. I mean, you're running more water again and, and you're putting out more fert and chem to push your ryegrass through May, um, or whatever it might be, you know, until you can transition fully, um, back into Bermuda and, you know, and, and so what this is going to do at Renegade is it's going to decrease their annual water usage by 20% and decrease their annual fertility program by 20%, um, and add, you know, 40 plus days of golf um, to the golf course, you know, to the golf calendar, uh, throughout the year, which, you know, which is great, which is fantastic. Now this transition, um, coupled with turf reduction on the golf course itself, um, you know, overall turf maintained area on the new golf course is less than what it was. So that with the new cool season grass will essentially offset and pay for the entire renovation um, over the course of time. I mean, on paper, using historical data, you know, that could be anywhere between three and five years. It could be longer. If we have a hotter summer or we have a colder winter or, you know, whatever, um, that number could fluctuate. But, you know, right now, you know, this is, this is a club that's looking to create an entirely new golf course that plays completely different from the old one for, for its members, um, that will entirely pay for itself through through the application of, of science and modern agronomics. And like, that's, you know, that's powerful, man. And while, while Renegade is private, um, you know, at a pretty exclusive high end club here in the Valley, that application can be used universally. I mean, this was 
an incredible combination of the the thought leaders at Desert Mountain and the thought leaders at Nicholas Design. Uh, primarily, you know, my my direct report, Chris Cochran, um, and and you know, they determined that this is the best way to go moving forward by conducting you know research on 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 the environmental conditions and on the soil and and on the golf course itself and um that application should be used everywhere you shouldn't you shouldn't be listening to an email from your members saying hey i watched the masters this week uh get you know give me that how do i get that it should be like well you know, that's not really sustainable in our environment. And here are the scientific explanations why, rather than creating a 52 week fertility calendar, um, to provide Augusta like conditions, you know, just, just be true to what you are, man. And, and, and make your course, you know, reflect your environment. And this is a, this is a sustainable model, you know, that everyone can Do you follow. think the membership of desert mountain is ready for that change. You know, I, I, I'm assuming that they've had Augusta like conditions at great cost, but Augusta like conditions, you know, for most of the time the club's been open. Are they ready to, to embrace a, a new way of looking at their golf course? Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, there are, there are, there have been 108, uh, bent grass greens at desert mountain for, for years now. Okay. So they've, they've played on bent grass greens throughout the year for, you know, for, I don't really know how long, but for longer than I've been around. Um, so they know what that looks like in the summer, you know, and, and, and the turf grass managers, the great superintendents and grounds crew at desert mountain, um, they know how to maintain it. And, you know, does Desert Mountain have more resources than most clubs? For, for sure, man. Um, but, you know, they're setting themselves up to reduce their inputs and reduce their resources and trending away from Bermuda grass, leaving Bermuda grass, which has a horizontal growth habit. Um, and the cool season grass has an upright or vertical growth habit. Um, this is going to leave their, their maintenance staff, um, able to spend more time on the golf course instead of hand edging and hand trimming, um, you know, Bermuda runners, um, that have crept over, you know, bunker faces or off, off tees or what have you. So, you know, to circle back to your question, membership at desert mountain, they voted for this. Um, so they know what they're going. They know what they're going to do. So what are the cool season grasses that are on the renegade course right now? So, uh, tees, fairways and greens, um, is a mix of double Oh seven and McKenzie, uh, bent grasses and, uh, rough areas are a mix of, uh, annual bluegrass and, and, and tall fescue. So on the greens, the membership won't notice much of a difference. No. And it's hard, and and it's because of the uh, Desert Mountain's always been at a certain elevation and within a certain climate that you could have bent grass greens in in Arizona during the summer. Right. Uh, Yeah. That's that's their that's their scientific application of you know understanding their environment and you know I mean I'm I'm from the Northeast man like I want to I want to put on bent I mean you know it's it's 
clearly, I mean, in my eyes, this is a biased opinion, but it's clearly the best putting surface around. So if you can pull it off um, here in the Sonoran Desert and offer your members bent grass putting greens, I mean, you know, why yeah. wouldn't you? And and they've they've been doing it. You know, they've been doing that for yeah. years. As long as it's as long as you're not trying to fit a square pig into a, a round hole, square peg, <laughs> like here in it in in my market in Atlanta, every you know all the high end clubs tried to pull off bent greens for years and years. You know, decades. That was a mark of of you know respectability. You know, it was a it was a, a badge of honor if you had bent greens. But it was so hard to maintain them. And and now most clubs, not all, but I would say. Maybe half the clubs have gone back to some sort of Bermuda hybrid uh, dwarf to just because they couldn't keep the bent greens alive every summer regularly. Even East Lake, you know, converted a five or six years ago. Um, so the of environment course, has well, to be you know, there for you to be able to do that in the first place. Right, and you know, in, in Atlanta, like yeah, you know, you you want to you want to offer bent grass greens. You know, it's a badge of honor, like you said, but. You know, we don't have, we, we might see 115, you know, daily highs up here for a stretch of time, but I mean, you know, there's 5% humidity in the air. And in Atlanta, you got 80% or higher oppressive mm-hmm. humidity, and you're growing old, old, you know, Pencross or, or, you know, whatever it might be at the time, right? And it just, it, it was a not a non-sustainable model. I mean, it works at a place like Augusta because they have sub air, right? So they can suck the moisture out of the greens. Um, but you know, we don't have that issue here in the dry. Yeah, desert. that's an advantage. So, how many courses in the Scottsdale or even the Arizona market are located within an ecosystem that will would enable them to transition into all weather, all season grasses? Well, um, you know, there's there's a number of courses. Uh, in in north scottsdale area right so um i would say once you're north of highway 101 right and you get north of 101 um you probably have an environment sustainable for at least bent grass greens you know if you don't have the budget or the resources to fully implement all cool season grass throughout um, I'd, I'd have to do a, a, a larger market survey, a larger market study to, to try and figure that out. But I know there's a number of courses in the area already that have bent grass greens. Um, and there's, you know, there's at least 30, you know, 30 clubs in the area that probably could pull it off wall to wall, mm-hmm. you know, and, and while there's 200 plus golf courses in all of Phoenix, um, you know, getting 30 to 50 clubs and, you know, in the, in the northernmost regions of, of city limits, I mean that, you know, that's, that's a big significant savings and a big significant impact, you know, on the environment, but you know, it, it, it's expensive to transition, you know, I mean, shutting down. And when you do that, you got to strip a lot of, you got to strip, you pretty much have to rebuild because, I mean, you might be sitting on a 30 year stand of Bermuda grass. So you got to get all that out of there. Um, pretty much have to completely rebuild all your bunkers. Um, so it, it, you know, it's a major project to, to go through that. It's not just dropping new seed. If clubs could find a way to run these, run these, you know, tests and, and grow some test plots, you know, take a patch of fairway, strip a patch of fairway and 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 drop some cool season and kind of see what happens throughout the year um you know i'd encourage i'd help anyone do that you know 
um, just, you know, just call. Um, so, so, um, the, the widespread application, uh, will be slow and, and, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen overnight. And I, I, I'd actually, I would still encourage people to give renegade a year or two years to kind of see, you know, see how, see how it all goes. I mean, when, when I was there, we had two bent grass fairways essentially as test plots and they were show pieces, man. I mean, they were, you know, they were striped, they were, they were gorgeous. Um, and you know, I just think other clubs interested in this that can pull it off environmentally, um, just, you know, just think it all through, take it slow and, and, and start with some test pieces on your property. Hey, David, I, I know you're you're kind of on your way to work right now. It's early where you are. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you about where you are right now. Now, you joined Nicholas Design uh, a few months ago, like late late fall of 2018. And from, the, I think, the golf architectural world, it's a very well-known company, obviously, Jack Nicholas, uh, the, the work that they've done over the last 40, 45 years or however long it's been. What What's your... I guess, well, let me back up. I think I noticed the company sort of change modes a little bit, maybe around 2000, that's loosely based, but some of the new courses that they started to build around that time started to get away from that that preconceived notion of the Nicholas design of the 80s and 90s courses that made it, were perceived to be a little bit more difficult to play, a little more steep, a little more muscular design for a, a, the better player, and it's more in, into a more sort of like accommodating, wider, more voluptuous style of design. I think my f- favorite course that I've seen from the firm is May River uh, outside of Hilton Head on, uh, in Bluffton, North Carolina. It, it's just beautiful, low country, but very flowing beautiful greens lots of chipping swales and areas gorgeous bunkering very shapely lots of strategy so the so the design firm has always kind of changed uh changed modes with the times and and i i, I may maybe sensing that they're kind of continuing to evolve and go through that again but what's it been like for you what what surprised you most when you joined uh nicholas design maybe based on on things that you thought about the company in the past Great question. And, um, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, right? Like these guys gave me a shot, man. And I I was, dude, I'm, I'm still am, I'm nobody. Right. And, and this is a company with, uh, incredible talent, you know, sitting in the bullpen. Um, you know, Chris Cochran has an unbelievable resume and after working at, desert mountain I, you know which were courses built in the 80s and 90s i kind of had my own preconceived notion of what to expect from his and his team's design philosophy from my time at desert mountain and dude i, I couldn't have been more wrong okay chris a lot a lot a lot like many architects i imagine go through philosophical renaissances where you know, they see things differently, or I've already done this, let's try this, you know, and the more time I spend with Chris, who's been an incredible mentor, um, you know, throughout the last year um, of my life, you know, transitioning out of out of Desert Mountain and getting some construction experience, and then finally being hired full time. 
you know, what, what drives him is the stuff that drives me. I mean, I grew up playing Bendelow and Emmett, you know, and Rainer McDonald banks courses back East. And these are guys that he is, is driven by. I mean, we have conversations about, about Yale, like all the time. Um, he's played it countless times. I've played it enough times to know every shot out there. And, um, you know, we're doing some really cool stuff now. And I think he's in a, in a position in his career, um, where he can kind of throw out some new tricks and, and, and see what he wants to do. And, um, his inspiration, his inspirations really match mine. Right. And, and we have a really cool, um, dynamic where I'll be on Google earth looking at blue mound or whatever, you know, some, some Rainer gem and I'll send him a green complex and he'll be like, cool. He'll be like, draw it, you know, send it over and like, we'll look at it. And, uh, you know, the other guys in the company, I know you just had, uh, Gil's Jim Wagner on, but you know, there's a Nicholas Jim Wagner and he's based in Manila and he's working on some really cool projects in Asia. He's a Boston guy, but he's been out there for a while. He's got a wife and kids out there. And, uh, you know, he's got, he's got some really cool sites, you know, out, out in Vietnam and, and out in Asia, and he's doing some really cool work. So over the next few years, it'll be really, it'll be really interesting to see how the company, you know, moves forward and see what we continue to pick up along the way. Um, so for me in my seat where I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed and, and, you know, don't really know what's coming next. Um, it's really exciting to, to kind of be a part of this and, uh, you know, take advantage of the sites that are given, you know, to us, um, to, to leave our, to leave our stamp. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to think about this company. It, it seems like I said before, and what you're saying is that this is maybe a, a turning point for the company. I know Jack Nicholas has kind of stepped away from from it a little bit, and it reminds me of Arnold Palmer design, where now Thad Layton and uh, Brandon Johnson are in charge, and and they're kind of taking that company in a new direction. Matt Dusenberry hasn't worked with Norman for a long time, but he's sort of disassociated himself with that, with that larger scale model of design and doing more intricate things, even though that was his background. And it'll be curious to see if, if Nicholas follows that trail too, but it's a fascinating company because it, it, there's so many dynamics to it. I, I just wonder like, you know, you, you said you, you talked to Chris about, you know, looking at a green complex at Blue Mound or you talk about Yale. And, and I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, where has this been all these years? I mean, if if that if that's been in the in the, you know, architectural DNA and the thinking of some of the people on staff, like it, it doesn't hasn't always come out. Like I said, it's in the last 20 years, I, I see a really nice movement where the company's going. But, you know, was it was it because. They they feel maybe the little, there's a little more freedom now that the design team has to explore ideas. Were they just so busy, you know, during the run up before 2008 that they weren't aware of like what other people were doing? You know, there's that famous story about when uh, Nicholas did uh, Dismal River that 
you know, allegedly he never even went over to look at sand hills, you know, so were they just in their own silo and they didn't, you know, uh, weren't aware of some of the, uh, the trends and movements and the explosion of architectural ideas and construction uh, developments. So I don't know, it's just, I, I, I'm not even putting this as a question to you, David, because it's not fair, but I, I know myself and I think other people are really curious about the way things work at Nicholas and, and if there is sort of like this, renaissance of design ideas or incorporating old ideas or doing like these really cool retro featuring, you know, where does that come from? Where's that been all these years? Cause they've had as many opportunities, you know, to do it over their, the span of the company's lifetime as, as anybody has in golf architecture. You know, I, I it's like you said, it's not a question and I, I can't speak on what happened before what happened at dismal river or whatever. I mean, what I can say is since I've been here, it's been, you know, it's been a whirlwind of creative ideas and reimagining, uh, classic inspirations. Um, and that really, you know, that, that grabs me and I really gravitate to that because that's the golf that I know. Um, I'm a little jaded on like desert golf and, kind of the hard edges and island tees and all the handwork and everything that it takes to maintain that kind of stuff. Like it's lost its luster with me while hitting a green fairway in the middle of the, you know, otherwise khaki Sonoran desert is way cool. Like it's a cool contrast, but I'm lost on it. And, and the fact that we're able to, um, kind of implement old world ideas and, and philosophies to modern times with modern, agronomy and and all the technology available like dude it's way cool and and you know i I don't know i don't know what happened before um i can't speak to that and you know i I won't even i'm not you know i can't even ask the guys you know no you shouldn't you shouldn't either but uh, you know it's it's interesting to hear you say that that you know the conversation that you're having and i think the rest of us will be very curious and eager to see how that relates to future designs and and how that is realized in the final products um we all hope that not that i mean nicholas design has always been quality it's the highest quality you know product by the way i i really like their dismal river course you know i just think i said that but and, yeah. and that was not a knock on it I, i've played it a couple times and it's it's really good it's amazing i love the place um so it wasn't a knock on the quality of that course um but let's get let's get you off of that david uh, i'm going to ask you the question that i love to ask everybody and you can't say a nicholas product i'm going to b- ban you from that but what's the best modern golf course so you can't say rainer or any of your old connecticut stomps uh, what's the best modern course the course that was built in the last 20 25 years or so that that really speaks to you the most all right um it's a fantastic question and can I give you a two part sure. answer? Yeah, it's just your podcast. Okay. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Take okay. advantage so, of it. So I love the features and the ground. Well, let me back up. Keep in mind, I haven't been everywhere and there are so many places that I need to go and study and play and 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 just see with my own eyes. Um the places I have been, um, the ground options and variety at Tethero in Bend, Oregon is unbelievable. The course is a little okay. extreme. Okay. Uh, the course is, is tough and it's up and down and around. And I mean, but you know, you're hitting shots 
on the ground and that place cannot play fast enough. It cannot be baked out enough. Um, so you're hitting a 140 yard, you know, shot into a par four that you've only got to hit it like 120, you know, and the rest is not in your hands and watching the ball just move the way it does there, you know, in that classic, uh, high alpine desert in in central oregon like that's way cool i love that um, that's, so I'm, i would I'm, never thought I'm in, think someone I'm would say that tethero. that's cool yep so i'm in on tethero um next is uh a course in in connecticut in upstate uh connecticut not really upstate i guess it's like mid-state um a course called bulls bridge and it's in kent and it is an unbelievable sight and for someone who's trying to build golf in Connecticut, um, it's, you know, it's pretty rocky, man. You know, it's not, it's not ideal conditions by any means. And, um, you know, the way it's a Fazio job, so it's pretty heavily manufactured and, and engineered. Um, that being said, the golf course is incredible um and the golf experience there is like second to none i mean it's it's an unbelievable golf course with incredible views all the way around i played it you know a year or so ago and i just remember standing on the first tee saying like this can't be in connecticut you know like this feels like upstate vermont i mean the mountains and and the green and um it's just a way cool vibe so i'm i'm all in on bulls bridge those are awesome. I mean, I, I never heard of Bullsbridge, so you know, and, and bringing new new blood into this question is very, very useful and helpful. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to mail in uh, a question and an answer because it, it it's easy I to. That. I mean, there's so many there's so many stock answers I, I could have given, but I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to think about it a little yeah. a little harder. Like I said, I I, I thought I thought. I appreciate that because, you know, as, so. as this question has, has kind of grown a, a life of its own and, and people who have listened to the podcast, I think, are now starting to say, okay, well, it's not just about the what I think the best course is. It's about a reflection on me. Like, what, what you know, what, what do I value or, or what kind of speaks to me on a personal level? And we're getting a little bit more creative with the answers, I think. So those are two really good ones. Tethero, I've never been there, but I think David Kidd would be uh, pleased to hear that. I think that was kind of this starting point of when the the media or the the critical eye started to focus in on his designs a little bit more oh dude tetheros way cool and i mean you know (laughs) there are people that are going to listen to this that are going to be like dude you're nuts that place is brutal you know and and it's extreme man it's a tough golf course but hitting a drive off that second tee and deciding to go left or right and then walking up and seeing where your ball is like that's there's no like that's the most exciting shot <laughs> i can think of off the top of my head it's incredible um and and there are just so many like that around that golf course so you know if you want to worry about your score um i've heard i think i've heard kids say on another interview like i don't have to give you par and he doesn't <laughs> at tethero um, by any means. So like, if you are worrying about your score, like you're going to hate the golf course, but, um, the place is, plays so fast and it's just, it's just such a cool and like 
I don't know, thought provoking, invigorating golf experience. I love it, man. I'm so that's in. so interesting because he's gone the opposite now with with Gamble Sands and Mammoth Dunes, and I think the new courses that are that he's working on. In that now he wants to give you par. Now he says, "I'm not going to give you birdie, but I'm going to give you par," which is the you know that's on the other end of the scale. So I wonder if after we see enough of his new the new David kid, if people if it's going to actually raise the estimation of places like Tethero that were considered maybe a little too extreme or, or too overdone and maybe even too difficult. If, if it'll actually make those courses rise in value because it's going to be so opposite. Maybe we'll get, you know, maybe we'll get tired of having, you know, 80 yard wide fairways to hit to and, you know, an easy par hard birdie. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen the new courses. Um, you know, I can only answer a course that I've played. So um, I gave you my I gave you what I feel, um, and it's it's honest, man. I mean, you know, I I I, I truly love Tethero, and I truly love Bulls Bridge, and I think anyone that plays them, um, again, putting the scorecard like in your pocket. Um, you know, they're incredible golf experiences. Um, I will say if you had asked me this in one week from today, um, I might be saying tobacco road cause I'm going to Pinehurst, uh, area for my dad's birthday, um, next week. So, um, I love studying strands and the artistic genius that he had. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like in a total nerd out on strands at the moment, like studying his work. I mean, it's just Google Earth studying, but um, I'm 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 pretty excited to go to go. Yeah, and see you have that. to see it in three dimensions. Um, are you are yeah, you worried exactly. at all that you'll go to Tobacco Road and and come away like not as impressed with it at or not in love with it as you think you're going to be? No, because um, I have, you know, I I don't. I don't show up like, I guess I should say I have expectations, right? Like, I, you know, I think I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of what I'm going to see. Um, and I feel like I set the bar low. Like I, I'm always my own harshest critic. And I think, um, I'm pretty hard. I'm a pretty hard critic on, on, on everyone because I set the bar low. Um, so it's easy to exceed my expectations, but if you don't, um, you really you know, shitty. You, you obviously didn't really. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, um, no, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what, you know, the, the construction, I'm excited to see the work that was done. Um, it's not, it's not the conditioning of the golf course that I'm looking at. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, what's it's interesting because so, when I, when I've talked to you, you know, people who actually build golf courses, architects, and people who've been on, you know, on the construction side, they, that's the one thing that they look at at Tobacco Road and find fault with is the, you know, what's under the surface. You know, the design element, the creativity, the shaping, the shot strategies. I think that's all there if you're willing to, like, open your mind and accept it. Uh, and I'm, this is not... I'm no expert. I'm not even a, an amateur as far as the construction side goes. But I've had conversations with people that say, yeah, you know, I notice things about the tie-ins or the drainage or the, you know, some of the infrastructure that, that you know, isn't as, as good as it maybe it could be. So at some point, I'm, I'll have to talk to you, you know, come back to you and, and see if you see anything that like that. Now that I've maybe I've, maybe I've kind of put a, something in your mind there, now that you'll be a little too observant. No, you're right. 
And, you know, I've, I've been, I've been at places where I'm like, you know, the club, you know, the club I play, I just, you know, last night I walked five holes and I go, Oh, that, you know, that tying's pretty, pretty brutal. And I had never noticed it. And then I was thinking, you know, I don't know, man, maybe it was super wet out here and someone drove a tractor somewhere they shouldn't have and no one fixed it. And, you know, I'm running through all these different scenarios of mm-hmm. why it would be like that. So, um, you know, I, I try and I try and have a holistic view and a holistic approach. Um, but I'm also flying in and out of Atlanta going to Pinehurst and I'm playing Rivermont, which I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. It's, um, it's really one of the few places if you're coming through Atlanta that you should go out of your way to see. Totally. And Chris, uh, Chris Cochran, my boss set it up and, you know, he's like, he's like, if you don't like the course, like I'll pay your expenses or, you know, whatever. He's like, the place is unreal. And, um, it just, it looks great. I mean, since we're talking about it, I'll I'll lay it out a little bit just real quickly. It was an old Joe Lee golf course. It's up in the Northern suburbs. Um, it, it was just an old it, it spins out through a, a housing development on two nine so that it's not a core golf course it was really nothing at all and the actually the houses are it's nice they're really set back you don't notice them a lot of the holes kind of like played down there's it's wooded but uh, it's probably been maybe 10 12 years now maybe some uh, a local architect named mike riley who used to work with nicholas he was a nicholas guy for a long yeah. time uh yeah he's chris's buddy. good Mike Riley is is a great guy. I know him a little bit, and it's just it it blows my mind that he's not really working in the golf architecture anymore. Um, I should have him on the podcast pretty soon. Talk about it, but his 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 design there is great. He did some other courses around town, but but it was it's that retro kind of old stool old school golf architecture inspired design with a lot of really cool bunkering native grasses. The green complexes are. Uh, maybe the best in the state is when it comes to interest and creativity and the way the ball moves on the green. So I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. It's fascinating. Yeah. And you know, they're, you know, creating, creating an old look, uh, with modern equipment. I mean, there's a real skill to that, you know, and not many people, um, can really pull it off. So, um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to go see that. And, you know, doubling back on that, like that's, you know, we were talking about Yale, like that's what makes Yale so cool, right? Is that they built what they built, uh, on rock in Connecticut in the twenties, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, so, you know, Rivermont, I'm stoked, man. I, I, I couldn't be happier to go play that place. And, uh, my time up in Pinehurst, like, you know, I might have some different answers if you ask me my modern golf course, uh, in seven days from now. David, great to have you. I'll let you get back to your job now, and uh, you got you're a working man, so we'll let you get back to that. But it was great talking to you, and so interesting to hear about Pudatuck. I'm gonna stick with that name. Yeah, Derek, thanks so much uh, for for having me. Um, you know, incredible to lay out the ideas that that we're talking about, and uh, hopefully laying foundations for you know a future a future sustainable business model. Um, you know, that rural communities, urban communities, anyone um, c- can really follow. So uh, appreciate the opportunity, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, really. And and this, this project you're working on and just getting started on, I think is one of the most interesting developments in golf and something that we all should should keep an, keep an eye on as best we can. It does represent something that I think golf needs. All right, Derek. Thank you. Okay. So David was in his truck driving through the early morning 
Arizona desert on his way to the job site when we had that conversation. So that was showing incredible commitment. Uh, David told me that he refuses to use Sandy Hook as an impetus or a cause for his attempt to get Pudatuck Meadows built. He doesn't want that to be the reason or to be directly connected to his efforts, which I understand that. But it's also important from my perspective, and I think just from the big picture perspective, to think about that town and, and what happened there and how we can all understand that there is a need for unity. There is a need for, for something to get behind. There could be a, a great desire or a great utility for a place where people could come together and gather and recreate, a place that's environmentally beautiful, environmentally sustaining, a place where families and children can come, a place where there's community golf. I know it's kind of trite and almost silly to say, you know, to suggest that there's some sort of healing power in golf. But there is, as David said, a, a meditative quality when you play golf. And at the very least, this could be an example for other communities how to do community golf and offer a place for the people of his hometown and anybody who visits a place to go and just kind of get away and be by themselves or to be with friends and family and to just kind of get away from it all and reflect. And, and golf, when done correctly, does offer spaces for that. So all of that is, is part of the story and part of his journey and, and this endeavor that he's taking on. And I guess we'll just conclude by saying we wish him the best. And we hope that David will continue to update us on the progress of this as it goes along. And hopefully he can find a nice piece of land and get to work soon. I'll just quickly encourage you once again, if you haven't done so yet, please go to iTunes and give the show a star rating and a review. If you've already done that, I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And while you're there, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Your phone or computer will automatically download the latest episodes of the Feed the Ball podcast when they drop. Go to feedtheball.com. You can also check out past podcast episodes. It's all there on the website. Maybe you've missed some. Maybe you want to go back and listen to those old favorite episodes again. If you haven't yet followed me on social media, I am at Feed the Ball on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me there. Poke me. Tag me. Jump into the conversations. Bump <laughs> Feed the Ball episodes when you see them come up on your timeline. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to David Marcuselli for joining me. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, I'll be the same.